0: Well, good morning. Let's pray. Lord, we give you thanks again for the opportunity to come together as your people. You've been busy and had things to do, all the things you've set before us. But Father, we are grateful to be able to stop and come apart, come together, and to remember what it's all about, and to uh, learn and grow and be better equipped to go out and serve this coming week. So help us today to learn, to think, to apply, and to represent you in this world, and we pray in Jesus' name, amen. As we work through uh, the ideas that are contained in Nancy Piercy's book, Love Thy Body, um, we're on the section that's focused on abortion. We last week began that, and we'll continue that again this morning. One of the questions that always comes up when we're having debates in public and the political realm uh, and, the, and by the way the political as we're going to say the political realm, the religious realm, we, we speak that way, but actually there's just one realm. Uh, there are different topics that come up but one of the issues oftentimes is the idea that many people think that it is inappropriate to talk about rights endowed by a creator, at least it's inappropriate to do that in the public square and the reason is because in the this fact value remember upper story lower story or lower story being fact you know science uh, the body different ways we've talked about this or secular and the upper story is spiritual uh, and so forth the fact value split is when a position is labeled as religious. So the Christian view, the Christian worldview, for example, it's assumed that that is private, that is subjective, that's your opinion, uh, and it's not to be shared by others within the community. It's not, you're not, it's not appropriate for you to be imposing your private subjective views on other people in the public square. Because the argument is that the public square is neutral. The public square doesn't it's not about that. And so, ironically, by that definition, it turns out that it's the secular view of personhood that should be barred from the public square, since in reality it itself is private and subjective. We don't who's to say who a person is? We don't have any definition of that. There's no objective way to determine that. Listen to Yale professor Paul Bloom uh, writing about abortion in the New York Times. He says, The question is not really about life in any biological sense. It is instead asking about the magical moment at which a cluster of cells becomes more than a mere physical thing. And what magical force has the power to convert a mere physical thing into a person with dignity so profound that now, a moment ago, it wasn't true, but now, if we take this life, it's murder. A minute ago, it wasn't that way, and a minute later, it was. Or how about a second ago and a second later or a half a second, or a millisecond, or a jiffy, which is a sixtieth of a second. In just a jiffy, we went from valueless, non-person, to incredibly valuable person. And so, they can no longer deny, excuse me, to put it bluntly, abortion supporters uh, have lost the argument on the scientific level. Uh, they're the ones, they, really everyone is injecting religion into politics. They're really not separable. As a result, they have switched tactics to an argument based on personhood defined ultimately by their own personal views and values. And when their view is codified into law, then their private views are imposed on everyone. Let's make a point. There's a lot of myths in the world, and one of them is Uh, This idea that people will say, for example, to Christians, stop imposing your religion or your values or your morality on us. Did you know that all laws are the imposition of someone's morality? Every law that is passed imposes someone's values, someone's ethics, someone's laws on everyone else. That's what law is. That's the nature of law. It's only a question of whose ethics, whose standards, whose morals are going to be imposed. This switch in tactics by the pro-abortion crowd was evident in a fascinating debate a few years ago. uh, when uh, It began when Professor Stanley Fish wrote in the journal, the title of the journal is First Things, that pro-lifers have no right to bring their views into the public arena, and, and, the, and the question of why not? He says, because their views are based on faith, while abortion advocates base their views on what? Science. Um, Robert George of Princeton challenged Fish to a debate at a meeting of the American Political Science Association. And in his paper, George argued that in reality, it is the pro-life position that is based on science. As is customary, the two scholars exchanged their papers ahead of time to read and to know the arguments of the other side. And when the meeting, when they finally got together to meet for the debate and the meeting opened, Fish threw George's paper on the table and announced, quote, Professor George is right, and he is right to correct me. In other words, the debate was over. The admission was met by stunned silence from the audience. Fish later explained his startling turnaround. Here's what he said. Supporters of abortion have typically cast themselves as, quote, defenders of rational science against the forces of ignorance and superstition. But when science began inexorably pushing back the moment when life begins, they shifted tactics. Nowadays, it is pro-lifers who make the scientific question of when, life be, uh, of, of when the beginning of life occurs the key one, while pro-choicers want to transform the question into a metaphysical or religious one by distinguishing between mere biological life and moral life. So the phrasing mere biological life What does that say about values? If we we just refer to it as mere biological life, it's not that valuable. It's not any more valuable than a table or any other physical thing. And so, uh, versus moral life, that's Fish's way of saying the body versus the person. His point is that when pro-choicers lost the argument on the scientific level, when does life begin at conception... Uh, they, uh, they shifted tactics by adopting the two-story dualism and appealing to non-scientific, a non-empirical concept of personhood. They went from rationality to irrationality. And so what we see is in this worldview, it is both arbitrary and Inconsistent. And we're going to, I don't have time to develop this, but if we, were, if we were just doing an apologetics class, we'd say that's what we always do when we critique a worldview. We want to get inside of that worldview and say, if your assumptions, if your presuppositions are true, then let's apply that to the world and see if we can do so consistently, or is this just arbitrary? Sometimes we want to rely on science, and when that doesn't work, we'll throw that out the window, and we'll just rely upon opinion. So it's time—it's uh, time to turn the tables on these old stereotypes. With every advance in science, it becomes more evident that to be pro-life is to be on the side of science and reason. And it turns out the biblical worldview of what the Bible says about life is true. And so, a good example of how the advance of science has changed this argument just in our—in uh, the last 20 years, uh, the advance in uh, imagery in ultrasound has gone from this kind of blurry, vague image with a, maybe a little bit of a heartbeat visible to now, you know, I even I hear people get you come back from having an ultrasound and they'll have the pictures, and it's almost like, you know, getting school pictures. Um, you, you're going to hand out the wallet size to all your friends, and they start saying, I'm like, well, he looks like you, or she, you know. Uh, there's so, so much detail that it's undeniable that this is a baby. And that's been powerful. In fact, when we were working with uh, a heartbeat uh, here, that was, I remember, some years ago when they were raising money to get that 3D uh, imaging uh, ultrasound because they knew that if a, a lady came in and could see her baby and see the hands and feet and the facial features... That would be a game changer, and it has been. And so there's an example of advance in technology or science that has just confirmed it. It's kind of the, it just occurs to me how often I'll read an article, and you'll see them come up. I've seen this all my life, biblical archaeology, where some dig takes place in the Middle East, and they discover, lo and behold, the Bible was true. You know, what the Bible said about this ancient civilization that nobody believed actually existed, lo and behold, we found it. Here it is. There's verification. And so this is the other side of that. So scientists recently discovered that when a sperm meets an egg, an explosion of tiny sparks erupts from the egg at the exact moment of conception. Scientists have been even captured these astonishing fireworks on film. Uh, Quote, to see the zinc radiate out in a burst from each human egg was breathtaking, researchers said. Human life literally begins in a bright flash of light. Now, the only strategy left to those who support abortion is to actually dismiss the evidence from science. Jeanie Bristow, editor of Abortion Review, wrote an article titled, Abortion, Stop Hiding Behind the Science. The article starts, quote, with anti-abortionists pushing scientific evidence on fetal viability, it is time to restate the moral case for a woman's right to choose. See, you understand what I'm saying? Viability is getting younger and younger. Again, the advances in science now means at, at younger and younger stages, a, a fetus, an unborn child, is viable outside the womb, and that's created more problems for the pro-abortion group. And so so she's arguing, says, we've got to stop arguing there. We're losing that argument, and we have to start arguing for the moral case For a woman's right to choose. Repeatedly, Bristow insists, quote, that the question of abortion cannot be resolved at the scientific level. It is a political issue about women's need for abortion in a society committed to women's equality and individual autonomy. Autonomy just means self-law. You get to make your own rules. A woman needs that. Men need that, right? We all need that. We need to be able to be in charge. We want to be as God. I want to make my own laws. I don't want anybody telling me imposing laws on me. I'll make my own. So if we translate that, what she just said, who cares about scientific facts? Personhood theory with its uh, dismal—excuse uh, me, its dismissal of biological facts is the unspoken assumption or presupposition even in arguments that don't state it directly. Consider the claim that a fetus's right to life depends on whether or not it is wanted. A few years ago, uh, MSNBC host Melissa Harris Perry said, quote, When does life begin? I submit the answer depends an awful lot on the feelings of the parents. An unwanted pregnancy can be biologically the same as a wanted one, but the experience can be entirely different. So biological facts matter less than the feelings of the parents. A Salon article, that's a magazine, asked defiantly, so what if abortion ends life? Well, this is a big shift. I mean, 20, 25 years ago, you would never hear this kind of stuff. The author, Mary Elizabeth Williams, starts by acknowledging the scientific facts. Quote, I believe that life starts at conception. Throughout my own pregnancies, I never wavered for a moment in the belief that I was carrying a human life inside of me. Williams even castigates her fellow liberals for denying this obvious fact. She says, when we try to act like a pregnancy doesn't involve human life, we wind up drawing stupid semantic lines in the sand, first trimester abortion versus second trimester versus late term Dancing around the issue, trying to decide if there's a single magic moment when a fetus becomes a person. Obviously, there is no magic moment, no sharp disjunction, no sudden transformation. Human development is a gradual, continuous process. Yet, because Williams supports abortion, We're not going to be deterred by this. Because she supports abortion, she herself is logically required to select some magic moment. For her, the deciding factor is autonomy. Whoever has autonomy, whoever has the ability to make the laws, wins. And here's how she puts it A fetus can be a human life without having the same rights as the woman in whose body it resides. She's the boss. Her life and what is right for her circumstances and her health should automatically trump the rights of the non-autonomous entity inside of her, always. Williams ends her article with these heart-wrenching words, quote, the fetus is indeed a life, a life worth sacrificing. She states it bluntly, all life is not equal. To borrow a line from George Orwell's Animal Farm, some lives are more equal than others. So the question is, who then is imposing their beliefs? The debate on abortions often portrayed as a conflict pitting those who think the state should remain neutral on moral issues against those who want to impose their beliefs on others. Yet we have seen personhood theory is far from neutral. So Nancy Piercy tells this story. She said, A few years ago I was invited to speak at a Christian worldview conference hosted by an Ivy League university, and I quickly noticed a pattern emerging. After each speaker, invariably some student would raise the same question, phrased in different words, if if we talk about a Christian worldview, aren't we imposing our views on others? Can't do that, can we? Clearly, even well-educated Ivy League students have absorbed the secular doctrine that it is illegitimate to speak from a Christian perspective in the public arena, that doing so violates ideals of neutrality and objectivity. When the same question came up after my lecture, as it inevitably did, I was ready with a counter-question. Is the secular position neutral? Is it unbiased? Is it objective? Of course not. It rests on a highly contentious, two-level view of human nature that involves a crassly, utilitarian view of the body, lower story, along with a subjective, arbitrary definition of the person, upper story, there is nothing neutral about any of that. When the government mandates policies based on that worldview, it is imposing a secular ideology, you can put in parentheses there, religion, on an entire society. Why? What is religion? It's beliefs, right? It's beliefs about God. You say, well, they don't believe in God. Well, that's a belief about God. It's a belief about people. What are we? Who are we? How did we get here? Where are we going? What's our purpose? Are we just biological machines? What is a person? All of these are ideas. All of these are beliefs, every every bit as much as the beliefs a Christian has. that doesn't mean they're equal beliefs. Beliefs can be false, they can be wrong, they can be arbitrary, they can be inconsistent, but they are beliefs, and therefore they are religious. It's an inescapable concept. So the problem is that worldviews do not come neatly labeled. Some do, but some don't. Most people hadn't thought about it. So we say we're Christians. We have a Christian worldview based in the Word of God, the Scriptures, the triune God. That's our worldview, so we want to learn to understand that and own it and define it and stand on it firmly. Somebody else hadn't thought about it, and they may not have a name for it. It might even be a hodgepodge. In fact, Francis Schaeffer said most people get their worldviews the way they get the measles, or I guess we'd say the coronavirus. They just pick it up somewhere, a little here, a little there, but they still have one whether they know what to call it or not. No one says that bioethical controversies involve two conflicting views of human nature. Instead, people fall back on stereotypical phrases, science versus religion, facts versus faith. And when we hear that kind of language, we should press everyone to put their worldview cards on the table. Um teaching apologetics, that's one of the lectures I have just called putting your cards on the table. Let's, I'll put mine on the table. I'm a Christian. I believe the scriptures. I believe that's the authority. I believe uh, God uh, made us a, a certain way. We're creating his image. We have intrinsic value. Okay, go on and on. All the things the Bible teaches about this world, about God, about life. That's my worldview. Now you put yours on the table. What is your ultimate authority? How do you think we got here? Where do you think we're going? What's important? What's not important? What is man? Let's let's put them both up here and let's take a look. The only worldview with the individual resources to protect those innocent victims, the unborn, is Christianity. Even secular thinkers often admit as much. Yuval Harari, author of the international bestseller Sapiens, A Brief History of Humankind, argues that if you accept that life evolved by material processes, Darwinianism, right, which he does, he says there is no logical basis for human rights. To kill a a person is no different than to kill a rattlesnake. He didn't say that. That's a phrase I've heard, and I think it's a good way of thinking about it. Consider the Declaration of Independence and its concept of unalienable rights endowed by the creator. Harari argues that natural selection, again Darwinianism, is a process for culling the most viable variations among living things, thus the key to evolutionary advance, is not equality but difference. Created equal should therefore be translated into evolved differently. And we don't have time to go. We've talked about this before, but I'll just make a comment about evolution. Here's here's the problem all by itself. It says these are impersonal forces, natural selection, survival of the fittest, those concepts, but then they start talking about what? Progress. Progress. What is progress in an evolutionary world? Would it be progress if suddenly we had six fingers on each hand? Is that progress? How about ten? And where did the progress come from? And who decides what progress is? What is progress in a world that is nothing but material forces grinding against each other over time? And yet... Evolution gets personified. It, it becomes. It has its own purpose. It's going somewhere. It's advancing. In fact, so um, in a materialist worldview, idea that matter is all that matters. Of course, there is no creator to endow humans with rights. Harari writes, "There is only a blind, blind evolutionary process." Devoid of any purpose, organisms simply do whatever their evolved capacities enable them to do. Birds do not fly because they have a right to fly, but because they have wings. And those evolved capacities are not unalienable. They are constantly mutating and changing. So according to evolutionary materialism, and by the way, let me point out, that is the unifying, if I had to pick one unifying philosophy in our modern age, that's it. That, that could be the motto at SFA and every other university, virtually every other university in our country. And the public schools, that is, yeah, I know, there are some exceptions. There are people who try to undermine that, a Christian here and a Christian there. But if you look at the system... This is why we are losing so many of our kids when they go off to school is we hand them over to Moloch and we say, here, teach them. Tell them how to think about this world and what's important. And the church has sometimes, oftentimes failed to do what we're trying to do this morning is give you tools and equipment to think about this in a Christian way. And so you're vulnerable and if every class, the English class, the history class, the science class, every class is taught with, if, if not openly stated, then it's, it's the assumption. I remember taking a psychology class and my professor, uh, I remember asking him what his worldview was. And he said, that's for you to figure out. Which was not that hard, actually. <laughs> um, but... Because what they want to portray is this myth of neutrality. I'm here to just teach the facts. Well, the facts have to be interpreted, all of them. And they're always interpreted with your worldview, with your assumptions. So, um, who's going to defend our rights if this is true? You think you have some? Those can change. You're one vote away. So we should not forget that half the population in this discussion or debate over abortion is effectively disenfranchised when it comes to this subject. Men are repeatedly told they have no right to hold a position on the subject because they're never going to get pregnant themselves. One woman declared, I do not discuss abortion with men and many men are happy to duck the issue. So uh, Reuben Navarrete Jr. said, I lined up on the pro-choice side. Uh, I arrived there for a simple reason, because I'm a man. Uh, Many will say that this is not a very good reason, but it's my reason, lacking the ability to get pregnant and thus spared what has been, for women, friends of mine, the anguishing decision of whether to stay pregnant, I remained on the sidelines and deferred to the other half of the population. So this attitude may sound humble, but Navarrete says he came to see that in reality, his attempt to be neutral was, quote, another name for wimping out. It was his wife who challenged him to change his mind. He wrote this. She's pro-life. She's not buying my argument that as a man I have to defer to women to make their own choices about what to do with their bodies. To her, this is cowardly. It's time to man up, she said to him. These are babies that are being killed, millions of them, and you need to use your voice to protect them. That's what a man does. He protects children, his own children and other children, and that's what it means, she said, to be a man. So being a man also means protecting women. Many women are pressured by their parents, husbands, boyfriends, into having abortions that they don't want to have. In a medical science monitor study, 64% of post-abortive women in America said they, quote, felt pressure by others to have an abortion. For themselves, 54% said they were not sure about the decision at the time, and 50% actually felt abortion was morally wrong. A full half of the women having abortions believe it's morally wrong, but they do it anyway. No wonder that in the same study, 78% of women checked off that they felt guilt afterward and 56% reported feeling sadness and loss. A student named Christopher said this, I was pro-choice until I saw what abortion was doing to women. I have several friends who have had abortions. Every one of them wanted the abortion beforehand, and every one of them regretted it afterward. They were convinced that they had taken a human life. When I saw how they struggled with guilt and depression, that was when I began to rethink the issue. Being a man means protecting the vulnerable, the disenfranchised, and the disregarded. More importantly, that's what it means to be a Christian. They oppose abortion because of the biblical admonition Christians do to protect those who are weak, powerless, dependent, and needy. Tim Keller put it this way. From ancient times, the God of the Bible stood out from the gods of all other religions as a God on the side of the powerless and of justice for the poor. The Bible is clear that God extends his love to all humans, including those not yet born. The most eloquent expression of this is found by the poet-prophet King David in the Psalms. Psalm 139, you're familiar with, but just listen to these words again. And in your book, they were all written, the days fashioned for me, when as yet there were none of them. Similarly, Job uh, says that God created him at the beginning of his life Uh, Job 10, uh, 8, and 11. Did you not clothe me with skin and flesh and knit me together with bones and sinews? Jeremiah reports that God called him to be a prophet even before he was born. The word of the Lord came to me saying, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I set you apart. These verses make it clear that God is intimately involved in people's lives before they're born. In the New Testament, Luke gives this amazing account. I think it's one of the, just one of the great powerful passages. It's almost just almost seems incidental to the story. You know the story when Elizabeth and Mary come together and Elizabeth's already pregnant and expecting John the Baptist, her son, and Mary has just found out that she's expecting. And you remember what happened, right? Um, And it's interesting because John the Baptist, what is his mission? His mission is called to proclaim the coming Messiah, to prepare the way for the Lord. Behold the Lamb of God, he'll, he'll say later, who takes away the sin of the world. But here they are in utero. And when Mary walks in to see her cousin, Elizabeth, the Bible says that the baby in, Mary, in Elizabeth's womb, John the Baptist, leaped for joy. And Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. And that infilling empowered her to recognize the newly pregnant Mary as the mother of our Lord. And so this little tiny embryo, Jesus, is already the Lord. Now, how to be countercultural? Theologically liberal organizations like the Religious Coalition for Abortion Rights argue that the Bible does not forbid abortion. We, we see this happen all the time. When you take any issue, there's always going to be a group who come along who want to say, no, 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 that's not what the Bible teaches. And it is true that the word abortion is not used in the Bible. It's not explicit in that way. Now, that's partly because during the biblical era, the Jews did not think abortion was acceptable and therefore there wasn't really any need to outlaw it. I mean, as we already saw in our own constitution where it talks about these things are self-evident. Everybody knows that, right? They regarded abortion as a form of murder, thus laws against murder were sufficient. By the time of the early church, however... Christians did have to take a stand, in the Greco-Roman culture, both abortion and infanticide were widely accepted and practiced. Thus, it's remarkable how strongly and uniformly the church fathers stood against both practices. In fact, it's going to be one of the areas where the Christians distinguished themselves in Rome. It was common if someone had a, a baby they didn't want, a newborn, they would abandon that child just drop it in the streets or under the bridges. Christians began to take those children in and adopt them and raise them. The Didache, an early Christian text, A.D. 50 to 120, says, quote, do not murder a child by abortion nor kill it at birth. The second century epistle of Barnabas says you shall not slay a child by abortion. Justin Martyr wrote, We have been taught that it is wicked to expose even newly born children, for we would, be, we would then be murderers. In the early 3rd century, Tertullian wrote, It does not matter whether you take away a life that is born or destroy one that is coming to the birth. In both instances, destruction is Murder. In the 4th century, Basil of Caesarea wrote, a woman who deliberately destroys a fetus is answerable for murder. John Chrysostom asked, why do you abuse the gift of God and make the chamber of procreation a chamber of murder? Jerome called abortion the murder of an unborn child, and Augustine warned against the terrible crime of the murder of an unborn child. The historical record of Christianity is impressive for its uniform opposition. This is not some new Christian view. The early Christians were not being, quote, conservative in the sense of following the lead of their culture. Instead, they were actually being countercultural. So this isn't new. Us needing to stand up here and fight and to be opposed. But if we don't speak, if we don't take a stand, if we grow, here's I think our biggest danger. By we, I mean I mean us, as as in those in this room, but also broader the Christian Church. And let me be more specific. And whether it's the Catholic Church or the Protestant Church, Evangelical Church, it's for us to have been in this battle so long that we grow weary in well doing, and we get used to it. It's so common. How many millions were slaughtered last year by abortion? Oh another million or two or ten. We're used to it. And little by little, inch by inch, the creep sets in and has been. It was a very dramatic moment in 73 with Roe v. Wade. But since then, we've seen that, that, that was just the beginning. That wasn't the end. That was just, they were just getting started. And they're not finished yet, I assure you. So the push for death interesting, Scripture say, God says, all those who hate me love death. We want to get rid of inconveniences. We want to get rid of consequences. We want to manage all this. We want to do what we want to do and not pay a price. So let me have a call to arms here, if you will, and say, I hope these things will stir us up, all up again with some fresh arguments, to think through this a little more deeply, to remember that even though many of us have been engaged in this for many, many years, um, don't grow weary in well-doing. In due time, we'll reap if we faint not. God hears our prayers. He sees our work. And every time a child is rescued, every time uh, help is provided for a pregnant woman uh, or for a child or... Uh, we give money, or have banquets, or help buy ultrasounds, or stand on North Street with signs. I don't know how many lives we've saved doing that every year. I think I think we're going to be surprised at how many somebody who was driving by, thinking about that that day, and changed their mind. And this is why the battle over every Supreme Court appoint, appointment is so vicious. You know, I think we sometimes are just so, we are naive. We, we don't understand what's at stake. They do. And they're willing to lie, ste- uh, steal, cheat, make up stories. Uh, and, and, and there's more than one problem here, and I'm agreeing with what uh, Austin has said here. The, uh, uh, I'm not saying that everybody that gets nominated turns out to be what we hoped they would be. But I think I remember, some of you old enough to remember Robert Bork, and I've read enough of Bork to know that uh, he's the kind of man that would have taken a strong stand on this issue, and that's why he was defamed, slandered, and at all costs had to be stopped. This is warfare. This is life and death. And if we want the blessings of God on this nation, there is no way. we I mean, we're going to be, here in just a minute, again, talking about Edom and their opposition to God and what God did to them. And I think we're absolutely just like them. We think we are untouchable. And this thing can come unraveled in a moment. All God has to say is, okay, I've had enough. So we've still got a lot of work to do. What else? Anybody? All right, let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the hope that you give us in Christ. We thank you that you've helped us to see and understand something about you and ourselves and the world we live in. We do pray, Father, you would overthrow the wicked, that you would frustrate their plans, that you would cause their foot to stumble, that you would destroy things like Planned Parenthood, They are wicked and evil, and we pray, Lord, that you would uh, completely bring them down. Lord, while we are angry and agitated over this, give us grace to show forth the love of Christ, the beauty of the gospel, the hope that comes in Christ, and the value of every human being. May we not betray our own worldview. Uh, in our interaction with those who oppose. But may we demonstrate the power, the love, the grace of the gospel. Bless us now as we come to worship. In Jesus' name, amen.